Chapter Two of *The Mountebank* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two. Our hosts, the Verity Stewarts, were pleasant people, old friends of mine, inhabiting a Somerset manor house which had belonged to their family since the days of Charles the Second. They were proud of their descent. The alternative to their motto, suggested by the son of the house, Captain Charles Verity Stewart, "The King can do no wrong." found no favour in the eyes of his parents, who had lived remote from the democratic humour of the officers of the new army. It was to this irreverent Calavillier, convalescent at home from a machine-gun bullet through his shoulder, and hero-worshipper of his colonel, that Andrew Lackaday owed his shy appearance at Mansfield Court. He was proud of the boy, a gallant and efficient soldier. Lady Verita Stuart had couched her invitation in such cordial terms that a refusal would have been curmudgeonly and the colonel was heartily tired of spending his hard-won leave horribly alone in London. Perhaps I may seem to be explaining that which needs no explanation. It is not so. In England, Colonel Lackaday found himself in the position of many an officer from the Dominions overseas. He had barely an acquaintance. Hitherto his leave had been spent in France. But one does not take a holiday in France when the war officer commands attention at Whitehall. He was very glad to go to the war office, suspecting the agreeable issue of his visit. Yet all the same he was a stranger in a strange land, living on the sawdust and warmed-up soda-water of unutterable boredom. He had spent, so he said, his happiest hours in London at the Holborn Empire. Three evenings had he devoted to its excellent, but not soul-enthralling, entertainment. "'In the name of goodness, why?' I asked, puzzled. "'There was a troop of Japanese acrobats,' said he. "'In the course of a roving life one picks up picturesque acquaintances. "'Hosimura, the head of them, is a capital fellow.' "'This he told me later, for our friendship, begun when he was eight years old, "'had leaped into sudden renewal, but without any idea of exciting my commiseration. "'Yet it made me think. "'That a prospective brigadier-general should find his sole relief from solitude "'in the fugitive companionship of a Japanese acrobat,' seemed to me pathetic. Meanwhile, there he was at Mansfield Court, lean and unlovely, but, as I divined, lovable in his unaffected simplicity, the very model of a British field officer. At dinner, on Saturday evening, he had sat between his hostess and Lady Oriel Dane. To the former he had talked of the things she most loved to hear, the manifold virtues of her son. There were fallings away from the strict standards of military excellence, of course, but he touched upon them with his wide, charming smile, condoned them with the indulgence of the man prematurely mellowed who has kept his hold on youth, so that Lady Verity Stuart felt herself in full sympathy with Charles's chief, and bored the good man considerably with accounts of the boy's earlier escapades. To Lady Oriole he talked mainly about the war, of which she appeared to have more complete information than he himself. "'I suppose you think,' she said at last, with a swift side-glance, "'that I'm laying down the law about things I'm quite ignorant of.' "'He said, "'Not at all. You're in a position to judge much better than I. "'You people outside the wood can see it in its entirety. "'We who are in the middle of the horrid thing can't see it for the trees.' "'It was this little speech, so simple, so courteous, "'and yet not lacking a touch of irony, "'the first made Lady Oriel, in the words which she used "'when telling me of it afterwards, sit up and take notice.' Bridge, the monomania which tainted Sir Julius Verity Stuart's courtly soul, 
pinned Lady Oriole down to the green-covered table for the rest of the evening. But the next day she set herself to satisfy her entirely unreprehensible curiosity concerning Colonel Lackaday. Lady Oriole, born with even more curiosities than are the ordinary birthright of a daughter of Eve, had spent most of her life in trying to satisfy them. In most cases she had been successful. Here be it said that Lady Oriole was twenty-eight, unmarried, and almost beautiful when she took the trouble to do her hair and array herself in becoming costume. As to Maiden's greatest and shyest curiosity, well, as a child of her epoch, she knew so much about the theory of it that it ceased to be a curiosity at all. Besides, love, she had preserved a girl's faith in beauty, was a psychological mystery not to be solved by the cold empirical methods which could be employed in the solution of other problems. I must ask you to bear this in mind when judging Lady Oriole. She had once fancied herself in love with an Italian poet, an Antionus-like young man of impeccable manners, boasting an authentic pedigree which had lost itself in the wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus. None of your vagabond ballad-mongers, a guest when she first met him of the Italian ambassador. To him, Prince Charming, Knight and Troubadour, she surrendered. He told her many wonders of fairy things. He led her into lands where woman's soul is free and dances on buttercups. He made exquisite verses to her auburn hair. But when she learned that these same verses were composed in a flat in Milan, which she shared with a naughty little opera singer of no account, she dismissed Prince Charming off-hand, and betook herself alone to the middle of Abyssinia to satisfy her curiosity as to the existence there of dulcimer-playing maidens singing of Mount Abora, to whom Coleridge in his poem assigned such haunting attributes. Lady Oriole, in fact, was a great traveller. She had not only gone all over the world— Anybody can do that, but she had gone all through the world. Alone she had taken her fate in her hands. In comparison with other geographical exploits, her journey through Abyssinia was but a trip to Margate. She had wandered about Turkestan, she had crossed China, she had fooled about Sakhalin. In her schooldays, hanging of the Sanjak of Novi Bazaar, she had imagined the Sanjak to be a funny little man in a red cap. Riper knowledge, after its dull, exasperating way, had brought disillusion. But like Mount Abora, the name haunted her until she explored it for herself. When she came back, she knew the Sanjak of Novi Bazaar like her pocket. Needless to say that Lady Aurel had thrown all her curiosities, her illusions, they were hydra-headed, her enthusiasms and her splendid vitality, into the war. She had organised and directed as commandant a great hospital in the region of Boulogne. "'I'm a woman of business,' she told Lackaday and myself. "'Not a ministering angel with open-work stockings and a red cross of rubies dangling in front of me. Most of the day I sit in a beastly office and work at potatoes and beef and army forms. I can't nurse, though I dare say I could if I tried. But I hate amateurs. No amateurs in my show, I assure you. For my job I flatter myself I'm trained.' A woman can't knock about the waste spaces of the earth by herself, head a rabble of pack-carrying savages, without gaining some experience in organisation. In fact, when I'm not at my own hospital, which now runs on wheels, I'm employed as a sort of organising expert, any old where they choose to send me. Do you think I'm talking swollen-headedly, Colonel Lackaday? She turned suddenly round on him, with a defiant flash of her brown eyes, which was one of her characteristics. 
the woman, for all her capable modernity, instinctively on the defensive. "'It's only a fool who apologises for doing a thing well,' said Lackaday. "'He couldn't do it well if he was a fool,' Lady Oriel retorted. "'You never know what a fool can do till you try him,' said Lackaday. It was a summer morning. Nearly all the house-party had gone to church. Lady Oriel, Colonel Lackaday, and I, smitten with pagan revolt, lounged on the shady lawn in front of the red-brick gabled manor-house. The air was full of the scent of roses from border-beds, and of the song of thrushes, and the busy chitter-chatter of starlings in the old walnut-trees of the further garden. It was the restful England which the exiled and the war-weary used so often to conjure up in their dreams. "'You mean a fool can be egged on to do great things and still remain a fool?' asked Lady Oriel lazily. Lackaday smiled, or grinned, it is all the same. A weaver of fairy nothings could write a delicious thesis on the question. Is Lattergay's smile a grin, or is his grin a smile? Anyhow, whatever may be the definition of the special ear-to-ear, white-teeth-revealing contortion of his visage, it had in it something wistful, irresistible. You will find it in the face of a tickled baby six months old. He touched his row of ribbons. Voila, said he. It's polite to say I don't believe it, she said, regarding him beneath her long lashes. But supposing it is true for the sake of argument, I should very much like to know what kind of a fool you are. Lying back in her long cane chair, an incarnation of the summer morning, fresh as the air in her white blouse and skirt, daintily white-hosed and shod, her auburn hair faultlessly dressed, sweeping from the side-parting in two waves, one bold from right to left, the other with coquettish grace from left to right, the swiftness of her face calmed into lazy contours, the magnificent full physique of her body relaxed, as she lay with her silken ankles crossed on the nether chair-support, her hands fingering a long necklace of jade. She appealed to me as the most marvellous example I had ever come across of the woman's power of self-transmogrification. The last time I had seen her was in France, wet through in old short-skirted kit, with badly rolled muddy puttees, muddier heavy boots, a beast of a dripping hat pinned through rain-sodden strands of hair, streaks of mud over her face, ploughing through mud to a British field ambulance, yet erect, hawk-eyed, with the air of a general of division. There sex was wiped out. During our chance meeting, one of the many queer chance meetings of the war, a meeting which lasted five minutes while I accompanied her to her destination, we spoke as man to man. She took a swig out of my brandy-flask. She asked me for a cigarette. Smoked out, she said. I was in nearly the same predicament, having only at the moment, for all tobacco, the pipe I was then smoking. "'For God's sake, like a good chap, give me a puff or two, she pleaded. And so we walked on through the rain and mud, she pipe in mouth, her shoulders hunched, her hands under the scornfully hitched-up skirt deep in her breeches' pockets. And now, this summer morning, there she lay, all woman, insidiously, devilishly alluring woman, almost voluptuous in her self-confident abandonment to the fundamental conception of feminine existence. Lackaday's eyes rested on her admiringly. He did not reply to her remark, until she added in a bantering tone, "'Tell me.' Then he said with an air of significance, "'The most genuine brand you can imagine, I assure you.' "'A motley fool,' she suggested idly. At that moment Evadne, 
the thirteen-year-old daughter of the house, who, as she told me soon afterwards in the idiom of her generation, had given the divine services a miss, carried me off to see a letter of Celium Poppies. That inspection over, we reviewed rabbits, and fetched a compass round about the pigsties, and crossed the orchard to the chickens' parade, and passed on to her own allotment in the kitchen garden, where a few moth-eaten cabbages and a wilting tomato in a planted pot seemed to hang degraded heads at our approach, and lingering through the rose-garden we eventually emerged on the further side of the lawn. "'I suppose you want to go and join them?' she said, with a jerk of her bobbed head in the direction of Lady Oriel and Colonel Lackaday. Uh, "'Perhaps we ought,' said I. "'They don't want us. You can bet your boots,' said she. "'How do you know that, young woman of wisdom?' She sniffed. "'Look at them!' I looked at them. Mole-visioned masculine fifty, seeing through the eyes of feminine thirteen. And, seeing very distinctly indeed, I said, "'What would you like to do?' "'If you wouldn't mind very much,' she replied eagerly, her interest in, or her scorn of, elderly romance instantly vanishing, "'let us go back to the peaches. That's the beauty of Sundays. That silly old ass Jenkins,' Jenkins was the head gardener, "'is giving his family a treat instead of coming down on me. See?' Evadne linked her arm in mine. Again, I saw. She had already eaten two peaches. Who was I to stand in the way of her eating a third, or a fourth, or a fifth? With the after-consequences of her crime against Jenkins, physical and otherwise, I had nothing to do. It was the affair of her parents, her doctor, her creator. But the sight of the rapturous enjoyment on her face when her white teeth bit into the velvet bloom of the fruit sped one back to one's own youth, and procured a delight not the less intense, because it was vicarious. "'Come along,' said I. "'You're a perfect lamb,' said she. Before the perfect lamb was led to the peach slaughter, he looked again across the lawn. Colonel Lackaday had moved his chair very close to Lady Oriel's wicker lounge, so that, facing her, his head was but a couple of feet from hers. They talked not so much animatedly as intimately. Lackaday's face I could not see, his back being turned to me. I saw Lady Oriel's eyes wide, full of earnest interest and compassionate admiration. I had no idea that her eyes could melt to such softness. It was a revelation. No woman ever looked at a man like that, unless she was an accomplished siren, without some soul-betrayal. I am a vieux routier, an old campaigner in the world of men and women. Time is when— but that has nothing to do with the story. At any rate, I think I ought to know something about women's eyes. "'Did you ever see anything so idiotic?' asked Evadne, dragging me round. "'I think I did once,' said I. "'When was that?' "'Ah,' said I. "'Do tell me, Uncle Tony.' I, who had seen things far more idiotic a thousand times, racked my brain for an answer that would satisfy the child. "'Well, my dear,' I began, "'Your father and mother, when they were engaged,' she burst out. "'But they were young. It isn't the same thing. Aunt Oriole's as old as anything, and Colonel Lackaday's about sixty. "'My dear Evadne,' said I, "'I happen to know that Colonel Lackaday is thirty-eight. Thirteen shrugged its slim shoulders. "'It's all the same,' it said. "'We went to the net-covered wall of ripe and beauteous temptation, "'trampling over Jenkins's beds of I know not what.' Annette, forbidden fruit. At least Evadne did. 
until, son of Adam, I fell. Do have a bite. It's lovely. And I've left you the blushy side. What could I do? There she stood, fair, slim, bobbed-haired, green-curtled, serious-eyed, carelessly juicy-lipped, holding up the peach. I, to whom all wall-fruit is death, bit into the side that blushed. She anxiously watched my expression. "'Topping, isn't it?' "'Yum-yum,' said I. "'Isn't it?' she said, taking back the peach. "'That's the beauty of childhood. It demands no elaborate expression. Simplicity is its only coinage. A rhapsody on the exquisiteness of the fruit's flavour would have bored Evadne stiff. Her soul yearned for the establishment between us of a link of appreciation. "'Yum-yum,' said I, and the link was instantly supplied. She threw away a peach stone and sighed. "'Let's go.' "'Why?' I asked. "'I'm not looking for any more trouble,' she replied. We returned to the lawn and Lady Oriole and Colonel Lackaday. Not a hole could be picked in the perfect courtesy of their greeting, but it lacked passionate enthusiasm. Evadne and I sat down, and our exceedingly dull conversation was soon interrupted by the advent of the church-goers. Towards lunchtime, Lackaday and I, chance companions, strolled towards the house. "'What a charming woman!' he remarked. "'Lady Verity Stewart,' said I, with a touch of malice, our hostess was the last woman with whom he had spoken, "'is a perfect dear.' "'So she is, but I meant Lady Oriole.' "'I've known her since she was that high,' I said, spreading out a measuring hand. "'Her development has been most interesting.' A shade of annoyance passed over the Colonel's ugly, good-humoured face. To treat the radiant creature who had swum into his ken as a subject for psychological observation savoured of profanity. With a smile I added, "'She's one of the very best.' His brow cleared, and his teeth gleamed out my tribute. "'I've met very few English ladies in the course of my life,' said he, half apologetically. "'The other day a brother-officer, finding me fooling about Pall Mall, insisted on my lunching with him at the Carlton. He had a party. I sat next to a Mrs. Tankerville, who I gather is a celebrity.' "'She is,' said I. "'And she said, "'You must really come and have tea with me tomorrow. "'I have a crowd of most interesting people coming.' "'She did,' cried Lackaday, "'regarding me with awe-stricken eyes. "'A Saul must have looked at the Witch of Endor. "'But I didn't go. "'I couldn't talk to her. "'I was dumb as a fish. "'Oh, damned dumb! "'And the dumber I was, the more she talked at me. "'I'd risen from the Franks, hadn't I? "'She thought careers like mine such a romance.' I just sat and sweated and couldn't eat. She made me feel as if she was going to exhibit me as the fighting skeleton in her freak museum. If ever I see that woman coming towards me in the street, I'll turn tail and run like hell. I laughed. You mustn't compare Mrs. Tankerville with Lady Oriole Dane. Mon Dieu, I should think not, he cried with a fervent gesture. Lady Oriole! Our passage from the terrace across the threshold of the drawing-room cut short a possible rhapsody. Later in the afternoon, in the panelled Elizabethan entrance hall, I came across Lady Oriole in tweed coat and skirt and business-like walking boots, a felt hat on her head and a stout stick in her hands. "'Whither away?' I asked. "'Colonel Lackaday and I are off for a tramp over to Glastonbury.' Her lips moved ironically. "'Like to come?' "'God forbid!' I cried. "'Thought you wouldn't,' she said, drawing on a wash-leather gauntlet. 
but when I'm in society I do try to be polite.' "'My teaching and example for the last twenty years,' said I, "'have not been without effect.' "'You're a master of deportment, my dear Tony.' I was old enough to be her father, but she'd always called me Tony, and had no more respect for my grey hairs than her cousin Evadne. "'Tell me,' she said with a swift change of manner, "'do you know anything about Colonel Lackaday?' "'We met here as strangers,' said I, "'and I can only say that he impresses me as being a very gallant gentleman.' Her face beamed. She held out her hand. "'I'm so glad you think so.' She glanced at the clock. "'Good Lord, I'm a minute late. He's outside. I loathe unpunctuality. So long, Tony.' She waved a careless farewell, and strode out. In the evening she gave Sir Julius to understand that, for all she cared, he could go into a corner and play bridge by himself, thus holding herself free, as it appeared to my amused fancy, for any pleasanter eventuality. In a few moments Colonel Lackaday was sitting by her side. I drew a chair to a bridge-table, and idly looked over my hostess's hand. Presently, being dummy, she turned to me, with a little motion of her head towards the pair, and whispered, "'Those two, Oriol and a... don't you think it's rather rapid?' "'My dear Selina,' said I, "'what would you have? C'est la guerre!' End of chapter 2